Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined today by Ben Simon and two guests to talk about listening. Uh, now, you might wonder why we're talking about listening. Well, we do know that effective learning conversations are at the core of our work in healthcare simulation. And actually, we spend a lot of time in our sim community thinking about what to say, the speaking bit. Um, but today, it's a deep dive into the why and how of effective listening. So why is that? Because Ben and some of our friends at Simulcast have written an excellent Harvard Business Review article on this topic. The name of that is What's Your Listening Style? by Rebecca Meinhardt, Ben Simon and Laura Rock from the Harvard Business Review in May last year. So I better introduce our guests. Obviously, everyone knows Ben. How are you, Ben? I'm good. Just really excited to be here with some good friends I haven't seen in a long time. I know. Well, both our guests are from Boston and uh, friends of Simulcast. Rebecca Meinhardt is an obstetric anesthesiologist, if you're in the American lingo, anesthetist in ours, at Massachusetts General Hospital, which is in Boston. Uh, she's an assistant professor of anesthesia at the Harvard Medical School and currently the OB anesthesia division chief at Massachusetts General as well. How are you, Rebecca? I'm fantastic. Such an honor to be here tonight. I think this is your first time on Simulcast, is that right? It is, it is, and what it is, I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. We're so happy to have you. Uh, Laura Rock, who has been on Simulcast before, but you might recall, is a pulmonologist or respiratory physician in our language uh, and critical care physician at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. And as you know, she's faculty for CMS, the Center for Medical Simulation, also trained, relevant to this conversation, as a vital talk instructor and runs communication training programs to promote more effective conversations and team work. How are you, Laura? Terrific. Happy to be back. Excellent. So uh, this article is written for the Harvard Business Review, which is not one of our standard journals in healthcare simulation, and yet it's got many lessons for us. And I'm going to quote from the first sentence of the article. Listening is important, but too few people know how to listen well. Uh, and the article really uh, reminds us that there is a lot more to listening than just active listening, although some of those techniques might be very useful if we are to have some better conversations, whether that's for our simulation debriefing or indeed many of the other roles where we uh, act in our professional careers. And the article goes through some examples where there's a bit of a disconnect between the speaker and the listener and deconstructs those examples. Where do those disconnects happen? And then it continues to tell us a little bit about the fact that there might be some listening styles and maybe we have some defaults and maybe these don't always serve us well. And what I took away from this article was that we really need to make a diagnosis before we listen and actually think about what are our listening goals and that's not something I've thought about before and maybe even decide why we're having a conversation. So I'm going to start with our guest now to give us a little bit of the backstory behind this article uh, and some of the key messages which they're going to tell much better than my short pricey could ever do. So Rebecca, you're the lead author on this. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you even got interested in listening and uh, what does listening as a term mean to you? So it's such an interesting um, journey, I think, that started with being faculty at Center for Medical Simulation and facilitating a lot of conversations that sometimes I felt like I was missing pieces of, 
um, and wondering why people didn't actually then change their behavior later on. So I started to become interested in this um, concept of coaching and how it's so um, it's so impactful for behavior change. So uh, I was able to train as a coach, and through that work, realized that uh, listening which I was sort of taking to be just what I did every day, I was actually much more, there are ways to be much more deliberate about it. And so thinking about this often invisible process that really shapes communication, it builds trust or breaks it, it helps people become connected or disconnected. Um, it was just such a fascinating topic for me and thinking about how a coach listens for the, the language behind the words, the meaning behind what people are actually saying uh, was really intriguing to me. So I started becoming really excited about it and then started talking at the Center for Medical Simulation about this work. And that's what I learned. Laura was so interested in it about the same time and was coming at it from a different lens, which I thought was really cool. And then together we we taught um, a class that Ben was in and he came back with just lots of energy and enthusiasm for this and shared with us how it really shaped his way of looking. And so together we thought this is a dream team uh, to tackle this topic. So um, I think that what listening means to me is it's it's such a beautiful active process that you can engage in when you're deliberate about it. Um, and it's been such a, it's been such a gift to see how I've been able to connect with people better now that I'm more mindful of how I'm listening to them, what my defaults are. Mm, so interesting. And I think what you've said there is this is a skill. It's a process, but it sounds like it's almost a stance as well that you have to take to be a listener. It's something that you are, not just something that you do. Is that right? What did they teach exactly. you in this coaching school that made you sort of shift that stance, do you think? Yeah, it was listening for the emotions behind what people were saying and seeing when people are hearing, when people were excited about something and noticing where their energy changed to really pick up and reflect back to them what their state was when they were discussing things. So now I find that after years of doing this, I started doing this in um, my simulation work and then in my uh, time as a program director and working with residents and also with faculty. Uh, and it's been really beautiful to hold this mirror up to people sometimes and say, you talk about doing this kind of work, but this is what you're really lighting up about. Maybe consider how this, you know, where's the ambiguity here? Where's the ambivalence here? Um, and, and so that's been really, really cool. What a cool skill to develop. Mm. And I like that idea of holding the mirror up. Uh, and I guess as your skills improve, that mirror is increasingly high resolution because you are able to do that rather than just tell people what they should do, which is sometimes a default style, shall we say. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, let's move to Laura now. And you and I have had some conversations about this. Plus, I've read and uh, your beautiful blog post in Life in the Fast Lane about some of these topics about listening to respond versus listening to understand. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that concept and how it connects with what uh, Rebecca's been talking to us about? So when Rebecca shared her coaching work and her interest in listening, it really provided me with a whole new vocabulary to apply to some concepts that I was already really interested in. So I came at this topic from critical care and from an interest in thinking about how do we build trust with, between clinicians and patients and even among our healthcare teams. And I, I you know, I felt like um, we often with the best of intentions, 
really don't listen. We interrupt, we want to be funny, we give advice, we share stories, and we think these are empathic moves, but they actually fail to capture what the person is saying. And so I think with that background and also with a lot of reading a lot of data um, on how much um, healthcare workers, especially physicians, fail to respond to emotional cues by patients and family members and probably each other. Um, we uh, we just don't, we aren't trained to really listen well. We may have heard that we should kind of listen actively. And a lot of us might think that means sort of taking turns talking, but it really doesn't capture the process of actually being truly curious about what someone is saying and listening in a way that we, to, to meet the needs of the person we're talking to or to achieve the goals of that conversation. So interesting. And I think uh, some of the examples that are in this article are clinical. Some of them aren't. They're about managers and some of them are about parents talking to their children. So I think that speaks to the breadth of it. But Laura, just to really double click on your sort of clinician experience, one of the examples in the article is a patient expressing a concern about a procedure and then a clinician rushing to reassure them that it will be fine. So just explain to us, where's the disconnect there and what might be a better approach? So if a patient says, I'm scared about this procedure, I think very common responses, some of which may be caring, would be, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine. You're in good hands. This this procedure list does a thousand of these a year, which are all forms of kind of not listening because they're sort of a false reassurance or really trying to fix or remove the emotion as opposed to trying to understand it better. Other possible responses may be, I'll get you an anxiolytic for the stress. Uh, I'll, <laughs> maybe you should cancel the procedure, all of which are, you know, other possible responses, which really fail to help this person feel heard. And I think if you choose to really try to understand what's driving this emotion, maybe you'd learn that they just want to talk it over, that they feel stressed because it's normal to be stressed when you're having a big procedure. And the, and just by validating that and possibly exploring it a little bit and, and acknowledging it, you would help not fix the emotion, but at least diminish it to a place that the person could participate better and at least feel some connection. Um, but you can also explore to actually surface what might be driving the emotion, which in this case might even be important clinical information. So if you said, oh, I, I hear you saying you're scared. I I hear you know, it's a scary procedure. I understand that. Do you want to talk about it? And they might say, well, yeah, the last time I had a procedure, I went into atrial fibrillation with RVR. And that would certainly be useful information for the clinician to know. So I think whether it's, you know, um, an opportunity to surface really important data, I mean, emotions lead to data, they are a form of data, or just an opportunity to validate and explore and provide some connection and empathy. They're both really important directions. Yeah, and I think this is it is a shift, isn't it? Because it's making sure that we see conversations as not just transactional, but relational. Uh, but even if we see them as transactional, we're probably going to do better if we uh, make we sure we pay attention to some of the relational things. Right. And, you know, I just wanted to add, Vic, that I think we often answer in that sort of way that I was describing earlier, because we think it's efficient. 
but it's actually probably less efficient when we're missing what someone's trying to say, either because we're missing important clinical information or because we're missing an opportunity to, to connect and, and build rapport and trust. Mm-hmm. All right. Can I come back to you, Rebecca, because I want to stick with these examples for a minute. Missing from the article was uh, any example from simulation debriefing, which I kind of understand because that probably is a very narrow part of the Harvard Business Review audience, but it's a big part of the simulcast audience. So if we translate these same principles and think about that, we're sitting in a debrief room and someone, uh, and we ask them why they did something, uh, one of the participants, and they come back with it. I guess one of the temptations is just to hear that so we can tell them a better way of doing it. But I think you're saying that this approach would be for us to dig a little deeper and put a slightly different uh, stance here. Can you tell me maybe how you would see that in a simulation debrief room? Absolutely. So I think you've hit, you've hit on a really important um, topic and it, it goes back to what Laura said also about trying to be efficient. So it's so common for us to want to say, well, this is really the approach you should be taking. But um, I've, I've said, I've used this technique where I've said to people, and this is again, another coaching technique where you sort of hold both things together and say, where's the ambivalence? Why is it hard? We know this is the right way. Why is it so hard uh, to do this instead of doing the, the thing that we keep doing? You know, why, why, why does, what, what is keeping us from doing that? And, and the answers can be really surprising and sometimes, and they're not often obvious at the beginning. And so I do think that what Laura was saying about digging more, really trying to understand more deeply. So tell me a little bit more about how do you see it in your world when you are faced with this difficult decision or this difficult clinical situation? Um, what are the challenges you, you come across? And that's when you start to see the emotion and then through that, you can more understand and reach them where where I think they are. And of course, as anyone who does simulation knows, you're not expecting all the light bulbs to go off in the very moment. It's just about sparking the conversation, sparking the reflection that you know later may lead to some benefit and some behavior change. But it's 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 a pro- it's a long process, I would say. But the start mm-hmm. is to really excavate what is going on behind the scenes. And the only way to do that is to be um, deliberate and mindful and really try to pick up on little things that they say. Mm. So again, it is a stance. But what I'm hearing a little bit is also there's still some skills, there's some techniques. I heard a bit of active listening, sort of traditional techniques. So you're not abandoning that, you're, you're employing them. But the shift is in actually the excavation. I love this word. Yeah, Ben, you had some comment. I comment there. I didn't. Yeah, just a brief one is I think one of the things that I learned through listening to Laura and Rebecca was that in debriefing specifically, being mindful of the fact that listening is a skill and therefore requires a budget within the debrief and for me to mentally recognize that I need to invest time and energy into that process that was really important and I think if we look at simulation literature and debriefing literature in general and most of the conversations that I hear in faculty development programs about debriefing we are almost 100% focusing on what does the debriefer say how do they phrase that in order to somehow uh, shape the conversations that's happening. And just the simple frame shift of recognizing, actually, this is a massive part of a learning conversation is the listening and I need to value it, invest in it and spend time doing it well. 
uh, allows me to do that well, but it also frees me up to stop worrying about what I'm going to say and focus instead on the conversation that's actually happening in ways that are actually freeing and less cognitively taxing long-term once I get used to it. Hmm. This is beautiful. Uh, cognitive load theory getting wrapped in here. And I think also heard a bit about return on investment of the budget. So finally, we see the Harvard Business Review relevance. Yes, Laura, you had a comment here. I, I just wanted to build on on that point. I I don't think we talk a lot about listening or we didn't talk a lot about listening uh, in the early sort of periods of, at least in my training as a debriefer. I think listening to understand is a core skill as a debriefing leader, because your your goal in an effective debriefing is to promote curiosity and perspective sharing. So you can't really do that without listening to understand. So it sort of depends on the goal of your debriefing. If, if you're doing a really quick plus delta, or you're trying to make sure everyone knows what drugs to give in ACLS, that may be different. But in a especially in an interprofessional debriefing, where you're really trying to get healthcare workers who may not really understand each other's roles and experience as well. You can't, you can't really effectively do that without promoting curiosity and listening. And the other key piece for me is we, we really aspire to meet learners where they are and we can't really meet people where they are unless we understand them. So uh, I think that's another um, aspect that, I think means a lot to me as a debriefer and a listener. I think it's also helpful as a podcast host. I've got this beautiful run sheet that's here and yet I'm supposed to be listening to what you guys have to say so that I can <laughs> make the most of your wisdom and expertise. All right, Ben. Uh, so why don't we come back to the article now because one of the uh, core pieces in it are these four listening styles apparently classified by Graham Bodie, which this is a framework I was unaware of. Can you just sort of take us through them uh, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about some examples? Yeah, 100%. And I think for me, this was a really important frame shift because before this point and learning these kind of diagnoses, I had the view that listening is very kind of a binary thing. And I think the language that we use around listening is very binary, either you a good listener or a bad listener, or you're an active or an inactive listener. And so to realize that actually that is completely the wrong language to be thinking about this process and that, that the uh, categorization is actually much more complex was really useful for me. So essentially, uh, there are four styles that have been described by Graham Bodie, and they are relational, critical, task focused, and analytical. And the approach to categorizing these is essentially look at the goal of the listener themselves during that conversation. So to give you some examples, a relational listener aims to build connection and understand the emotions underlying a message. Like you're listening to the emotion behind the words more than the conversation itself. So to give you like a common example, I might be having coffee with a friend and they're telling me about an argument at work. And if I'm in that relational listening style, I'd likely be listening to the timber of their voice, to their pauses and the words that they choose to describe things to just specifically try and decode how they're feeling about the interaction. Was it upsetting? Was it cathartic? Was it confronting? Maybe more than the specifics of the argument itself, if that makes sense. That's accurate. That's it's a really good classification of that. Uh, and so critical listening, the second one, uh, is a style of listening in which you're aiming to judge both the content of the conversation 
and the reliability of the speaker themselves. And this actually might sound pretty judgy, but it's a really important skill, right? So it's very normal in conversation with new colleagues to be about, you know, part of that conversation to be about establishing trust. Does this person sound like they know what they're talking about? Is there consistency in their story? So yesterday, my son, for example, told me uh, after school that he accidentally made the loser sign at another kid at school today. Uh, and now that kind of kicks off some immediate parenting instincts to go, hmm, some of that sentence seems a little bit dodgy. <laughs> Let's just step back and explore this quote unquote accident a little bit more before I trust my son's perspective on that event. Right. So, uh, it's a, a very useful skill in the right context, but it can limit our ability to connect with people if we're so focused on judging their trustworthiness that we don't make a, a human or emotional connection. Um, I just want to jump in here and say what your example shows is so important that it's not always about uh, being negative. It's, you know, you obviously, well, hopefully you obviously love your son and you are, you know, looking out for him and his development. And so the critical listening doesn't always have to have a negative lens to it. Thanks so much, Rebecca. And then a task-focused listener it shapes a conversation towards efficient transfer of important information. Uh, so this would be very familiar for many of us who uh, work in healthcare, particularly when we're time-critical, poorly resourced in poorly resourced jobs, where we often have to make rapid decisions based on based on initial pieces of information. So if you've ever taken a history on a very unwell patient who needs immediate treatment, or say if you're a fire warden and you're trying to find information about the location and nature of a fire, you'll know that we can very effectively shape a conversation efficiently toward the information that we need from a speaker. And I think, again, it's important to highlight that this isn't a bad thing. This is a really important skill for many of us in healthcare to do our jobs well, particularly when we are time pressured and making critical decisions. But that style of listening isn't great at forging human connection or understanding. And so by its efficiency at getting to the answer we want, we're more likely to exclude useful information that we might find from another style. So often when I'm training emergency healthcare teams, this would often be the style that we tend to get stuck in more than the others. Uh, and I think that's a, a related to the fact that this is where we have to sit at work a lot of times to do our jobs well. But if we get stuck here, then actually, as Laura mentioned, we can be trying to reassure or understand a family's concerns about a sick patient and actually just... Uh, not be efficient and be stuck in the wrong listing style and try and instead just exerting our reality over the speaker's concerns. And it just it becomes a much more time in an inefficient process. Yeah, I know even our uh, terminology panders to this, doesn't it? History taking. I'm there getting the history out of my patient. <laughs> Clearly the patient gets nothing out of it. So true. <laughs> in this model. Yeah. And I, you know, I yeah, I have been to emergency departments uh, with my son as an SMO in the department and watched the way the conversation is shaped to be completely disempowered and unable to say, actually, I just wanted some prednisone. He's got croup. We can get out of here in like 20 minutes if that's okay and instead be there for two hours because no one's actually listening to our concerns at any stage. So it can be less efficient than we think in many ways. And then the last listening style is called uh, analytical listening. And this can be often one for, for new people to this concept is a little bit harder to get your head around, but essentially you're aiming to analyze a problem from a neutral starting point. 
Uh, so it's a somewhat kind of dispassionate lens to be listening to a conversation where you're really working hard to stay neutral and get all the information before you come to a judgment or decision. So for me, an example might be that you're at a morbidity and mortality meeting and you're hearing about a clinical case with a suboptimal outcome. And rather than leaping to conclusions, you're working really hard at just getting the details, making sure that you've heard different perspectives and that you have the most informed understanding of the situation before you make a recommendation or comment. So this is a very uh, nice deconstruction. I suppose our challenge is thinking about how then we apply these in the moment. And uh, Rebecca, I might just come to you here because I think where the article goes now is to say, look, we often do have a default and to recognize in the moment when that might not be the right one. And this idea of having a listening goal seems to me to capture uh, that concept. But you know, this might take people a little bit of getting into, do you think? Absolutely. So I, I sort of, when I was first learning about this, I would try out different things on my family, which I don't know how much they appreciated it. But it was funny, because I, I realized as I was becoming more mindful about these skills and trying to understand how I would actually apply them. So if I was going to be doing task-oriented listening or task-focused listening, what was my goal? My goal was to get the information, provide advice, move on. Uh, so I started asking, like, for example, my mother, uh, when she would start to talk to me about something and I would say, okay, do you want me to give you advice? Do you want me to listen and support you? What would you like? And she would choose one. And it turned out actually she wanted the other. So it was sort of through trial and error that I realized that um, it's a it's a whole exploration. So I was trying new skills on friendlies, um, and and the, you know they were telling me how I was actually you know what they needed, and and sometimes it was different when they uh, from what they actually did need. And so then I I realized how to switch gears, how to recognize it really was not getting anywhere. She was getting more frustrated, so then I would switch uh, to another style and have another goal in mind. So yes, a very much a learning process. You know, as humans, we have such different needs ourselves when we have an issue or even something we're excited about. And, and I'm listening to Rebecca thinking, yeah, I think we, we know to call a certain friend or a certain family member if we want a certain style of listening. Like my mother would always be task oriented and, um, you know, I might have another friend who's always going to be really relational, but in some moments I might find relational annoying and I might just want some quick advice. So I feel like we might not know that we're toggling this way, but that we choose our conversations based on what we might need. Mm, maybe we need a little preview comment. Uh, <laughs> why I'm calling you is. <laughs> and uh, and does this relate to this concept of dynamic listening, Laura? Uh, have we? How do we learn to be have this flexibility to shift gears? Yeah, I think that you know one thing I learned from Rebecca when we were starting this work together is, uh, and as we've you know gotten more and more familiar, all of these styles have value. We aren't the message isn't that one or two of these styles is better than another. We do think that relational and analytical listening tend to lead more towards a um, listening to understand style, but we really need to have aptitude and be selective about choosing these styles in our interactions because every situation may call for a different style of listening in order to achieve the goals and to help um, build trust by creating a feeling of being heard and understood and also by 
being efficient when needed so we can get our work done and move on with our lives. So I think, you know, knowing how to recognize what style we need to be using or uh, what style we are in, and then toggling back and forth based on the needs of the situation is a great skill. And we may learn it partly by messing up and realizing after we've walked away from a conversation, like, oh, I really could have been more analytical there. Um, That's a pretty common one for me. (laughs) Or, you know, that that went on, you know, that dragged on longer than it needed to. I probably could have asked more pointed questions and and moved our conversation along more productively. So I I think recognizing where we can improve the style we're using and then learning over time to incorporate it in real time is probably a real advantage. Yeah, I guess it's like any <clears throat> any habit. Uh, it does require a little bit of practice over time and feedback and uh, and skill at observing when it's happening. I'm thinking, Ben, about those conversational diagrams that we've talked to uh, Andrew Coggins about. I'm wondering, instead of mapping where people are talking, watching a debrief and mapping what kind of listening people might be doing, uh, at least as observed, and maybe talking to them about it later. I wanted to mention that there's another style of listening that we haven't discussed, which is not listening. And <laughs> and it's yes. actually a very real style. And there's a physiological reason for it. We can listen faster than humans can speak. So um, we we can actually process words. And I mean, process, we have uh, our, the human brain has a capacity to process words much faster than people can speak. Um, so, which is, I think for English speakers, approximately 125 words per minute and we can process about 800 words per minute. So that leaves a lot of extra space for our minds to wander. So we naturally will have these kind of involuntarily involuntary mental sidetracks and unless we make a really conscious effort to listen, we let these mental private sidetracks take over. So then there's this emotional piece which is about our motivation to listen. So if we can't control the physiological fact that our minds are going to wander, but we care about the speaker or the information, we can make this mental and emotional effort necessary to concentrate and truly listen. Hmm. That is so interesting, isn't it? Because I feel as though maybe some of that time where we could be listening is spent practicing our response, coming back to your idea about the listening to respond. We're busy testing out the six things we might say once this person stops bloody talking. Uh, if only we could do what we do with the YouTube videos, just turn them up to twice as fast. That would be, <laughs> if we could just ask people to come on, move it along a little bit. I, I think that's a real challenge for for new debriefers too, because, you know, it's, we care so much about how the debriefing is going and we want to ask these incredibly erudite, pithy questions. So we spend a lot of our energy, our mental energy, thinking about how to shape the next thing we're going to ask. And then we miss all this gold, which is, you know, actually being curious about what someone's saying and following up on on the conversation that's right in front of us. All right. Well, listeners are wondering where to from here. We've got these four listening styles. We've had some encouragement to shift our stance to thinking about a coaching 
situation, if we're in a debrief room or indeed in many other conversations, to recognize where our bias might be as a listener in different contexts and when we might shift that. Everyone's listening going, totally convinced. I see now all my listening crimes from the past and I'd like to change myself. I'd like to be a much better listener. Uh, what would you say to people? And we'll start with Rebecca, then Laura, then Ben. You go, Rebecca. Um, I think that what was really exciting for me was that early coaching training to listen for the emotion and see where people and just notice where people are getting excited or their energy is changing. And I would say for one skill to be developed, I, I would say try, try to start there because as as Laura and Ben have said, you know, the emotion is tied to so much rich data behind it. And so if you could start to notice it in the subtle cues and then explore it a little bit more, um, just with your natural curiosity, I think you can go a long way to developing those uh, different flexible skills and really connecting with people, even if you don't, even if you're not so mindful of like, well, which style am I in now and which style do I need to be? So just like looking for the, that rich data that's already there all the time is, I think, a place to start. Yes, really capturing that stance, I think, and then building the skill into it. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Laura? One possibility would be to take the listening quiz, which is um, in the referenced in the paper, and, and trying to ascertain whether you actually have sort of a default listening style and then making a conscious effort to practice the other styles. You could set an alarm at, you know, three o'clock every day and say, for this next hour, I'm going to try task oriented, or I'm, well, most people probably don't need to practice that one, but um, some of these other styles of listening, or I think probably the harder piece, but even more productive is if you're truly curious, if you really listen with conscious curiosity, then wanting to understand will change the way you listen. I don't think you can fake curiosity. I think it actually has to be authentic. So um, I'm not, you know, I think it depends on your motivation. But the other thing you do is just being aware of these different ways we can listen. You can ask the person you're talking to, like Rebecca said she did with her mom, um, you know, how could I be most helpful here? Do you want me to critique what you're saying? Or do you want to just vent? Um, you know, I, I want to, I sort of want to be most useful here. So maybe those are some options. Yeah, nice. And I think uh, being honest with yourself about whether you are actually interested in the other person, if you're not, fine, give them a tutorial. Like <laughs> we've all been there. And then just be honest with yourself and say, okay, I'm just going to Tell you a few 10 causes of why someone might get... I'm all about being honest and above board. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, Ben, uh, well done on you inviting such erudite and wise guests. I think that's the first take-home message. But uh, what do you think? What would you be telling people to take away from the article and indeed this general encouragement to be intentional and thoughtful about our listening? Well, I want to cheat and have two, but one is within life. I think the simple act of thinking about what your goals are in a conversation is a really relatively easy thing to do, but it can be transformative because if we can start a conversation with empathy for the speaker and a shared goal for the conversation, then we're much more likely to have a productive and meaningful combination com connection with people that leads to good outcomes. Uh, and within debriefing, I think we need to uh, probably prioritize the way we teach it 
and and recognize that actually this is such a core skill that why are we spending so much time starting our debriefing journey thinking about what I'm going to say and do we instead need to focus more on how do I connect with my learners and hear what their concerns are before I launch into how I'm going to shape and transform them. I love mm. that. I think that I think that sounds like a foreshadowing of the article uh, that will be written for the simulation community on listening and debriefing, which would build on all the great work that the three of you are already doing in various contexts. Well, Simulcast listeners, we've been talking with Rebecca Meinhart, Ben Simon and Laura Rock about their brilliant article, What's Your Listening Style in the Harvard Business Review from May last year. And so in our blog post, we'll put a link to that article and the quiz that Laura mentioned. Uh, and I really hope everyone has a few thoughts about their listening. And uh, it's given me some food for thought, that's for sure. But uh, Rebecca, Laura, and Ben, thank you all very much. Thank you thank so you. much. Thanks. All right. Vic Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast.